I play video games. Fortnite. Overwatch. Minecraft. Cool math games. Schoolwork. Watching movies. Watching TV. Mickey Mouse cartoons. Peppa Pig. Social media. FaceTiming. YouTube. Hi everyone. This is the Techno Panic Podcast. What's a podcast? Here's your host, my mom, Kristen Turner, and her friend, Ian O'Bird. Welcome to the Techno Panic Podcast, where we talk about all things living and learning in an age of screen time. I'm your co-host, Kristen Turner, here with my colleague, Ian O'Byrne. Ian, it's been a while since we've talked together, and I don't know about you, but I know my feeds have had a whole lot of conversation about issues of privacy and technology, especially with all the gifts that have been given over the holidays. Um, how you been doing and what have you seen? Absolutely. It's good to talk with you again. It's been much too long. I agree with you. We left before the holidays talking about smart devices in our home. And so after that discussion, I've been thinking more about privacy and security. I've been thinking more about algorithms and decisions that are made about us by these devices. Some of these things we see and know about, many more things we don't know about. I've been reading a book, and I've referenced this before, about surveillance capitalism. And so I'm interested and perhaps a little bit fearful about all these concepts. And and my challenge is... Who do I talk to this stuff about? If I talk to family or friends or other parents, it's hard to explain to them. We sort of understand privacy and security, but it's really hard to make sense of how to talk about algorithms or how to talk about surveillance capitalism and how these things really impact our lives. Yeah, and I'm actually looking forward to having some really clear definitions that I can share with people. To address these concerns, we have reached out to an expert on these topics. Dr. Chris Gilliard, a professor of English at Macomb County College in Michigan, is here with us today. Welcome, Chris. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. One of the reasons we wanted you to come on is because you research and write about privacy and institutional tech technology policy, something called digital redlining, which you might want to explain briefly, and the reinventions of discriminatory practices through data mining and algorithmic decision making. And I feel like that was a mouthful of words that um, I really think we could use some breaking down of. So could you just translate for all of us what it is that you research and study and write about? Well, I mean, uh, that <laughs> the uh, I don't necessarily want to bore people with a bunch of definitions right off the bat, but I, I would say what I, I really look at are the different ways that computational tools are used to kind of further entrench uh, kind of existing discriminatory practices and also in some cases magnify and, and occlude them. So some of the things that I've read in your work talk about um, issues of invisible walls and surveillance, uh, both of these being connected to digital justice. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about those things, um, and then I won't make you do specific definitions. Okay, yeah, so a lot of the work I've done kind of stems out of uh, my teaching. So by day, you know, I'm an English professor and I teach, uh, you know, composition and research writing and things like that. And so I've come to a lot of these realizations by uh, watching how my students work and how they're able to work and how they're not able to work and how some of the technology decisions either by 
my institution or by, you know, companies like Google or Turnitin or uh, Facebook or whatever, Canvas, <laughs> how those influence how students are able to work and what kinds of information they have access to. So uh, the, the common example I use often is that, so there, there's two examples, one sort of inside the institution and one sort of that kind of, kind of would speak to anybody at any institution. The first one is that for a long time, my institution was filtering the, the internet. So there was, uh, which is a, it's, it's very uncommon for colleges to do that. Um, there's a federal mandate that K through 12 has to do it in some way or another, but that's not true for colleges. So that made it very difficult for students often to do research because, uh, as you can imagine, in college, you would look up things that a filter may block out. The example I, I typically give is that my students were doing research on what at the time was commonly referred to as revenge porn, but is now more commonly called uh, non-consensual intimate imagery. And I mean, which is a thing that college students probably might want to uh, think about or, or read about or read. And I'm, I'm guessing when they would want to go and search that, they're not going, they're going to use the revenge porn term as compared to the non-consensual imagery term. Yeah. So that, yeah. <laughs> that term, non-consensual intimate imagery has only sort of relatively recently been added to the lexicon. Like it was for a very long time referred to as revenge porn. That was like the, the commonly used name. And so the filter would just take off the word porn and just, you know, it, I mean, not that a thing, not that the filter thinks, but, you know, it thought that the students were looking for porn, which they were not. They were looking for research on porn on a particular kind of, you know, material. And so that kind of sent me down the road of thinking about how the institution's decision to block material affected my students' ability to learn. And it wasn't only students. I mean, professors would do that too. But the way that that sort of forms what you might call an invisible wall is that students are often being asked to do research in areas where they're not an expert. So if I go look up some, you know, material on about revenge porn and then nothing comes up, I know where to look. I know um, who, what names to type in. I know different terms to, to type in, you know, all those things that students often don't know. And if you've ever had the experience either with yourself or with uh, a student researching something in which you are not an expert, when you don't find anything often what people say is, oh, there must not be anything. Not mm -hmm. that, oh, I can't find it, but oh, like it doesn't exist. And so they're re it was really like kind of blocking students from getting information that they, uh, I think, deserve to have access to. Um, it makes me think now about all of the, the search terms that I, you know, frequent, that are probably found in my browser now. Uh, as an internet researcher, I'm pretty much looking up everything under the sun from you know, current events uh, to political, you know, things that are happening. And also it reminds me of back in my middle school classroom that a lot of the, the filters, my students knew how to get around the filters and I did not. So they were much more digitally savvy. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, there, there's a longer discussion about how these filters don't really do what they're supposed to anyway. Most young folks with who are even moderately skilled and um, with some time and determination on their hands can get by them. But the other way that that 
those walls are kind of thrown up is through journal access, you know, um, which depending on what kind of institution you're at, you know, very much dictates what kinds of journal access your institution has. And again, I, I mean, I teach at a community college, which doesn't have the same, you know, doesn't pay for the same kind of access that uh, our one place uh, might. And so my students are very often don't have access to the same amount or kind of information that other places might have. And again, uh, uh, I found that, uh, you know, a lot of times I have first year students, but um, I found that a lot of times people have not discussed these issues with them. And so again, if they come up to a point where it says either that information is not available or they have to pay extra for it, um, that's a real disincentive for people to uh, do research. And, you know, it's very difficult when you don't understand the, the structure that uh, supports that system. I mean, we, I live, in a, uh, I live a, in a state that has quite a few research institutions and in that, so essentially, oftentimes people are being asked to, I mean, if they pay taxes, being asked to uh, pay for a journal article several times over. So that's, that's how I think about those issues or kind of a a real cursory look at how I, I think about some of that stuff. One of the things that I think about is, you know, when we think about K-12 environments, we'll talk about school filters and those privacy filters. And we talk to a lot of parents that they might like those, you know, quote unquote, invisible walls. They like the fact that this is limiting their child, whether or not they really work is another story but they like those filters. They like the way that it may protect their child. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, uh, well, um, I don't like them. You know, I mean, I, I think I, you know, I, I mean, I, first of all, I, I should say I do have a, a kid. So I, I'm, I've been able to put my money where my mouth is and for a lot of these things that I'm going to talk about. But I think that, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge something first, which is that, there are lots of terrible places and spaces on the web that rightly you might want your child to avoid. But I also think that sometimes those fears are overblown. And also that we, you know, I shouldn't say we, I mean, I want my kid to have some ability to explore and gain knowledge and have some, and feel like he has some freedom to come talk to me about some of those things rather than me sort of clamping down on what he's able to look at. I mean, or so, and so an example might be a, a kid uh, exploring his sexuality, you know, maybe with parents who aren't, who aren't comfortable with it. And so I don't know that, well, I, I'll phrase this in a different way. I'm pretty convinced that kids should be able to explore some of those things without their parents knowing every single site they're on or things like that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's it. So how do you talk about, do you talk about these subjects with your kid? Do you talk about, how old is your kid? Uh, he's 15 now. So, I mean, how do you talk about surveillance? Do you talk about digital redlining with him? I do. We talk about privacy, talk about consent, you know? And, and again, I mean, I think... You know, there are age-appropriate ways to do a lot of this stuff. But one of the things I think is really important that many people in our society have lost sight of is this notion of consent. 
which is something you can talk about with a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old or, you know, a 17-year-old, you know, that are, you know, the recent, I mean, technological developments in the last, you know, dozen or 15 or 20 years have really poisoned the, the way that people think about consent um, and what it means and what it's supposed to mean and, and how we understand it and things like that. So to give a concrete example, when my kid was old enough to, to start asking for a phone, one of the things we talked about was, you know, when can you take pictures of people? Okay. So the way that that works in society now, I would argue is pretty screwed up. Right. And you know, if there's, somebody you know if there's like an attorney listening someone will say well there's no expectation of privacy in public which legally is somewhat accurate but not entirely but that means something different uh, now than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago so that we've become very accustomed to having our picture having our picture taken when we're out in public either people taking it you, you know maybe you getting caught in the background or people taking pictures of other people in embarrassing or compromising positions and things like that. I mean, and, and further of people posting those things on social media, which is a thing that no one should do ever. I mean, barring like, you know, questions of like harm, you know, but in terms of embarrassment or, or things like that, you should not take pictures of people without asking them and gaining their consent, you know? And so when it was time for, you know, my kid to start thinking about getting a phone, I mean, that's a discussion we had, you know, but, and I think, I think that's a discussion that people can and should have. And, and part of the reason we've wound up in some of the places we are now is because people haven't been having those con conversations and we've let people or companies like Facebook or Amazon or, or Google structure that, that discussion or lack of it. I've, I so appreciate your bringing up this idea of consent and taking pictures. It's something that I talk to my own children about in terms of when they are taking pictures of their friends, but also pushing their friends a little bit to consider whether they, my children, want their picture taken. A lot of their friends have social media accounts, my children don't, so the posting isn't really an issue in our house, but pushing my kids to say to their friends, I don't want you to take that picture of me, I don't want you to post that picture of me is, is a challenge that I face because they feel very uncomfortable asking to give consent. But I appreciate your saying things like that. Yeah, and I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a very, when you, boil it down you know i mean again it's it's complicated by a lot of the tech but i mean to give like a very like very small and specific example i think it's important to teach kids that they have the ability to say like i don't want to give this person a hug or i don't want to give this person a kiss or whatever the case may be right that they have their own set of like their own bodily autonomy and their own set of boundaries and things like that and the and i think that's a thing that a lot of people understand. But as we kind of move forward and inject like technology and platforms and things into that discussion, you know, that often morphs in, in some unfortunate ways. And, and let me just say this. So I, like one of the things I'm maybe known for is like talking about nightmare scenarios of particular things. So a, a nightmare scenario, and when I say nightmare, that may be, is maybe not like perfectly accurate because this is actually happening, is that photos that are put on social media 
or websites or what have you are often scraped by various companies uh, and uploaded in databases and then used for all kinds of different purposes that were never intended by the person who took the photo or the person who, whose photo was taken, you know, up to and including military applications. So like, you know, you might have your, a photo or a set of photos or something in Flickr or some other kind of photo database and come to find out that it's being used to like train, you know, drones to better target uh, people. Okay. So like, <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I chuckle, like sometimes I laugh to keep from crying, but I didn't make that up. Like, like things like that are currently happening. Um, and so that notion of sort of like consent and consent in public and what it means to have your picture taken, it means something very different now than it has in the past. Some of the other things that you talk about in your writing are about surveillance, which seems to be related to this question of consent and the, the security systems, ring doorbells, all the video cameras that seem to be following everyone everywhere. Um, so can you say a little bit more about surveillance and how it's playing into this idea of consent? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, and again, I, I, I think this narrative has been uh, very successfully pushed by lots of companies who, you know, have a lot to gain from it. There's a narrative that that more cameras is somehow going to equal more safety. And I, I mean, we have, I mean, there are, if you read any science fiction, I mean, we've kind of seen lots of like authors discussions of how this might play out, you know, but ultimately, uh, well, let me, again, let me give you, let me give a concrete example. So I, uh, I, I talk a lot about the proliferation of, of ring doorbells in uh, America. And the ring doorbell is a doorbell connected to the internet that is uh, it's a company owned by Amazon. And they partner, ring partners with police departments across the country. I think at the la it's, I think it's something like 700 different police departments at this point and growing. And it, so there, and there's a social media platform called Neighbors that goes along with Ring that allows people to post footage from their doorbells onto, onto neighbors and talk to other people in a specific geographic area about the footage and about what's happening in their neighborhood, but also to send that footage to police and police can also request footage. But, you know, I'm pretty, uh, I think it's a pretty scary scenario to have everyone, you know, wide number, wide numbers of people in neighborhoods, all having cameras point out onto the sidewalk and street and use social media platforms to sort of amplify their fears about things, which are very often, you know, someone biking down the street or someone walking down the street or someone delivering a package. But it often is, winds up being people who someone with, so let me be precise when I say this, someone with a ring often is complaining about someone they don't think should be in their neighborhood. So that's, that's coded somewhat, but I think people. <laughs> I, I'm going to call it out. It's pro they're, they're profiling. Yeah. 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 And you know, I don't, uh, one of the things I talk about and I've had, I don't know if, if you folks know Mike Caulfield, but he and I have had some really good discussions about this in terms of what, how easy access to surveillance and sharing that with the police turns kind of very mundane interactions or what have typically been mundane interactions into 
opportunities to, to involve the police. And the example I give is that in my own neighborhood, there's several people who have rings. Uh, so my car got egged. So, you know, someone threw eggs at my car. Good old fashioned fun, right? <laughs> right, right. I assume that it was kids. Kids I mean, these days, I tell yeah. you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, go back 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you know, 75 years. I, you know, I don't, like people weren't calling the police if your car got egged. You go out and you wash it off. Like that's the end of that story. And I actually don't think you should call the police when your car gets egged. And part of my reasoning for that is I don't, I mean, I just don't think it's a, a thing for which you call the police, like, but also oftentimes interactions, you know, so everyone's interactions with the police are not the same. And so I think people should be very wary and very careful about when they do that, because there's the potential that you're endangering someone's life. And I mean, I can't speak for other people, but I have no desire to endanger someone's life because my car got egged, you know, so um, my neighbor came out and said, oh, I have the ring footage if you want me to send it to the police. And I said, no, 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 that's okay. You know, and I got like, uh, you know, some paper towel and some white vinegar and I washed my car off, you know. But, you know, that simple interaction, I mean, I think illustrates some things that because of the ease with which people are now able to to interact with the police, you know, it takes things that are you know, I mean, people have been egging cars as long as there have been cars and eggs, you know. Uh, I mean, the amount of harm done is so minimal that it's really not something I would call the police for. But I think things, technology like, you know, surveillance cameras on everyone's porch make calling the police like a, a more likely scenario. So it seems like uh, the technologies are feeding the panic that Ian and I are constantly hearing about and talking about without the the ring doorbells, the kids egged your car but now with the ring doorbells we have footage of vandals um, which is a a different i guess or interpretation of what's going on in the world and it's a heightened sense of anxiety i think for everybody yeah absolutely i mean you can get alerts now anytime someone you know steps on your porch you know i mean or or crosses kind of a threshold that where the camera looks out you know 30 feet you know i mean violent crime for the most part is down in the US, you know? And I don't, I mean, I think there are some very traditional things that people have lost sight of that I would argue are much better than a camera, you know? Like knowing, like talking to and knowing your neighbors, you know, having street lights and porch lights. I mean, like like super obvious things. But also, you know, I mean, if people are invested in having a security system, I mean, traditionally, again, they pointed inwards, right? So, like, they don't point out onto the sidewalk or the street. They don't ingest people into Amazon's system, you know, or, or at least innocent people. But that sort of lack of friction, you know, that, like, seamless experience, that seamless connection between, you know, the customer, uh, the police, and Amazon, I think is something um, really problematic. I mean, I think, to put it another way, if police department knocked on everyone's door and said, hey, can we put a camera in front of your house? You know, I'd, I'm not sure if that would resonate differently. I think some people would be uneasy with that. But when, but when you know, when, uh, when Amazon does it or when someone buys it and like Amazon is the uh, sort of extra party in that, it somehow takes on a different tone, unfortunately. As a somewhat related topic, 
one of the things I've thought about is my daughter is in early childhood, my son's in elementary, and we see tools like Class Dojo and Seesaw, where my son can sit down and turn on the webcam at his computer and read to us. In early childhood, we'll have the teachers will regularly pull out their cell phones and send photos of my daughter playing at school, all of the kids playing together outside or doing some art project. And there's there's a part of me as a parent that that likes that, you know, seeing these moments from school, but then it also, there's certain things that, as you said before, maybe we don't really need a camera there in those situations. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the, the privacy concerns there. Do I know where this footage and this content is going to for these companies? You know, what happens after these companies are, are sold or bought or, you know, or fold? What should our thoughts be as parents, as we see more and more of these technologies go into our schools, we think about, hey, isn't it great that, as opposed to what are the real consequences of this? Yeah, I mean, a way I think of the calculus, you know, is often um, about trade-offs. You know, what are you gaining and what are you giving up, you know? Uh, but the unfortunate aspect is that you may be clear on what you're gaining, but you cannot, you know, so there's many ways in which you cannot know what you're giving up because of the, some of the things you just mentioned. So that companies, you know, so companies are bought and sold and, and, and they go under. And when that happens, all kinds of things happen to the data that may be outside of the realm of what they initially talked about. You, and you're on Twitter, so you know, like some of the discussions about in, in structures, you know, pending sale. Like there've been a lot of discussions about that. But the other thing is that, you know, when you're talking about surveillance capitalism, that the idea that, that if a company has data, you know, or pictures, you know, I mean, I'm including things like pictures in that, they're gonna do, they're gonna do uh, anything they can to make money off of that. So that includes the ways that they're currently doing it, but ways they might not even have thought of yet. Okay, so the problem with a lot of these things is we might know that we're getting that, you know, eye moment, you know, that's cute that my kid did this and that I can see it, you know, on a webcam. But we have no way of knowing down the line how that same data is going to be used, maybe, you know, very possibly to the detriment of that child, or to at the very least in ways that monetize or use that data in ways that we hadn't imagined. You know, and so again, to give a, another like very specific example, there are uh, there are a couple colleges. I think Duke University was one of them, where researchers put video cameras on campus, and you know, with facial recognition, and left left them there for weeks, and uh, you know, took images of every person walking by and put those images in a public database. And there's a researcher named Adam Harvey who kind of traced how those databases were used, you know, who else used them and uploaded them and things like that. And as it turns out, those databases, you know, so those like picture, you know, images of students' faces at, at a university in America, you know, were used by by companies that sell military tech, you know, or surveillance tech to the to the Chinese, you know, that helps, you know, monitor and discriminate against Uyghurs. Okay. So this is like horrifying. I mean you're walking on campus and your, you know, you, your data is, um, makes its way to being used to, to help, you know, 
I'm not sure if people know how, about the um, situation in China with the Uyghurs, but let's just say there's horrible treatment, like pervasive surveillance tracking. And so uh, there, so people's, uh, and, and I mean, there are countless examples of this, you know, I don't know if you have kind of a show notes, but I could send you some others where people who have put their images up on, you know, images of their children, you know, and uh, that data gets used in some horrifying ways that I don't, I'm pretty sure people didn't intend. And uh, it definitely wasn't in the language of the, you know, the terms of service of the initial, you know, technology. And there's no way even, even the most sort of discriminating or sav tech savvy person would have anticipated that. So for me, it's not worth it. I mean, you know, there are pictures of me on the web. I mean, I didn't put them there. You know, I, I maybe, a, you know, occupy a, a somewhat extreme uh, position on this. But um, because there are so few laws and regulations covering these things, I, I don't think people should put pictures of their kids on the web, or I think they should be very, very careful about when and how they do that. And, you know, I mean, it, certainly that poses some inconveniences and maybe would make people think a little bit differently about the way the choices they make. But for me, you know, the things that I'm getting versus the things that I'm giving up, you know, and the things that I can never know that I'm giving up or contributing to uh, aren't really worth it. We definitely have show notes and we'll share a lot of the, the pieces that you have aligned with the audience. I have one more question for you to get you out on, but I wanted to indicate that people can find you at hypervisible.com. You're on Twitter at hypervisible. Where does hypervisible come from? A long time ago, I did uh, my dissertation on, so my dissertation's on uh, Trace's historic uh, imagery and discussion of uh, black athletes, like how different image, uh, so like it took some iconic black athletes and looked at how their images were put out into popular culture and the narratives that describe that. So way back then, I, I ran into a phrase that said something along the lines of like the hypervisible black body. And I've sort of taken that as my, uh, you know, as my, my nickname, you know, or, you know, my, my screen name or whatever. And I mean, to, to tease that out a little bit, it, the way I think about it is like the ways that sort of images of, of blackness are, are perpetuated in popular culture. So that, yeah, that's where that comes from. Very cool. Uh, everything that you write, I copiously uh, consume. And so I was trying to hunt that down and figure it out and I could not figure it out. So the, the question I'll get you out on is, you know, thinking about your child, you know, and then speaking to other parents out there, how do we talk, you know, how do we first understand the challenges and possible opportunities here? And then how do we talk to our kids about this? How do we talk to youth about all of the, the elements that we talked about in this episode? Well, you know, I mean, I know that, you know, I think it's very natural and, you know, I, I feel this way too, that people want to um, protect their children. And, but I, I think there is, you know, I mean, I've got one kid, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on this thing. I, I'm maybe not, but I have read a lot of research. And I think that a mistake that parents can make is that is to believe that they can protect their children from all harms or even the, you know, from any bad thing ever. 
Um, I, I mean, I mean, in my book, that's not what parenting is. It's to prepare them for the bad things that they know that they will experience in their life. Um, by watching them constantly, um, what you are trying to do is the first thing, um, which inevitably fails, right? I mean, bad news for anyone who's any parent who's ever lived, you can't protect your kid from any, every, any and every harm that they might, you know, run into but you can prepare them for it or do your best to prepare them for it by um, surveilling them constantly. I mean, what some of the research talks about is that it makes children less trusting of authority figures to know that they're constantly being watched. So again, so concrete example, if your child experiences or runs into something bad online, you know, bad in quotation marks, ideally what you would want them to do is come talk to you about it so you can kind of figure it out. And also you want to have had some discussions with them previously so that they would have some mechanism for understanding that thing. But by surveilling them, what you're almost guaranteeing is that they're not going to come talk to you about it um, because it makes them less trusting and more likely to, you know, I mean, I don't like this term, but nothing better is coming to mind at this moment, but more likely to sort of sneak around and, and try and hide and things like that. I mean, I, again, I go back to the consent idea, which is something that people of all ages can understand. Using the example of my kid getting a phone is we had him write out, my, my wife and I had him write out the rules for how he was gonna use the device. You know, how many apps you're gonna use? When are you gonna use it? When are you gonna put it down? Like, who do you, you know? And then we wrote a similar list and then we got together and compared the lists, right? And so instead of saying, here's what you won't do, you know, we got a chance to say, oh, well, that's interesting. Why did you put that? And, you know, here's what, what, how we think about that, you know, which, again, like as an as a instructor, you know, as a professor, I think it, it's important to draw on some of the knowledge and experiences that young people already have and to validate those things. And I think you get further with that than laying down, you know, ironclad rules and, and and spying on them. Thing I got to add too is a lot of the surveillance stuff, like it doesn't work. It, like the real, um, the only claims, like m most of the independent research says that it doesn't work. And the only, a lot of times the only claims we have that say it does are the companies who are selling it. Well, thank you, Chris, for taking the time to chat with us today. You have my mind reeling about all of the self-reflection that I need to do, which is typically how we end episodes of the Technopanic podcast, thinking about what the takeaways are for us as individuals who dabble in this technological world through our literacy research, but who also are parents just trying to do the best we can. So a couple of the things that I'm thinking about and trying to offer concrete opportunities for any parents who are listening. Number one, um, you really do want to take stock of kind of how you are putting information about your children out into the world. There's another episode of Technopanic about uh, sharenting that you might want to listen to because we did talk about sh oversharing and sharing without our children's consent on that episode. Um, and then as you're taking stock of yourself, also having conversations with your children about consent and consent pretty broadly, thinking about the consent to um, have their worlds shut down and have invisible walls put around them through filters or some kind of surveillance system on computers or devices, but also consent to have their images and, and their actions 
and everything else that's happening taken and then perhaps posted and not even knowing where those things might go. Um, so I think just understanding the possibilities is, is the first step for us as parents and then talking with our children about those possibilities. And then every family has to make their own best decisions uh, for themselves. So it might not be what Chris has done, taking the, the stance that nobody should be sharing these and, and doing his best to not share images and things like that, but that we all understand the possibilities with that. So thank you everyone for listening. Ian, it's been good to have uh, this conversation again today. And Chris, thank you for being here. Oh, and thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, we'll see you all next time. watching my videos. Take the pellet!